Section Two of the Centaurians, and this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Yenguo. The Centaurians by Biagi, Chapter Two. Middleton and Co were very hazy concerning Professor Saxlinger. Bergen and Rollins knew nothing. When Middleton informed me the professor had dropped all his old associates when he retired from the college, and in return everybody had forgotten him. He, Middleton, understood Saxlinga was involved in some colossal scheme which he had hung on to all these years, and so far his only recompense was in tasting the delights of a hermit. He lived way out somewhere in the suburbs. In a little house of his own, did his own cooking, and was very crabbed to outsiders. And while hunting up the man, Middleton asked, "I intend to remain some time on this side of the ocean." I told him, "I always liked Saxena, and I simply wished to meet him again. He was the only man who seemed to understand me, and naturally we are congenial." No harm in looking up the professor. He said, "I always thought Saxena a mighty shrewd fellow, and his advice was heeding. Hunt him up, by all means. Splendid idea." The Middleton scowled fiercely while I roared. The sleep of the town and the world was sounded that he always avoided while I was within earshot. Idea, idea, idea! Ah, for brilliant fun! Middleton's chagrin was amusing. Several days later, early one morning, I and a pair of thoroughbreds speeded toward the suburbs to search for my old friend Saxlinga. I reined up in front of a little old cottage of one floor, cellar, and attic. The little front garden was overgrown with tall pink flowers and huge yellow ones with broad green leaves. The gate hung upon one hinge because it liked to, and had to be coaxed open wide enough to admit one. There was a narrow gravelled path leading up to an old green door, ornamented with a tarnished brass knocker in the form of a lion's head and with a ring through its nose. And here, in this part so peaceful and sunny, old Sax had buried himself with his colossal ideas. I strode up to the olive door and used the knocker several times with a noisy effect. My summons was suddenly heard throughout the house and several blocks beyond, but all remained calm, peaceful, no sign of a living creature anywhere. I stepped out to examine the premises and discovered smoke issuing from the chimney, so tried my luck again with a series of startling knocks. I heard footsteps, quick, jerky, irritated footsteps. Bones were snappishly drawn, and the door opened violently. There stood Sex, red and angry, enveloped from head to foot in a huge apron, sleep rolled up, and armed with a fork. Well, young man, he bowed. Might have known I didn't want to be bothered. What do you want? Same old sex, and cross lovable as ever. 
I took off my hat and stood smiling at him. He scowled fiercely for a second, then gasped, "Salucci! Oh my soul! Why is Salucci?" He grabbed and drew me into the hall, gazing at me in astonishment, chuckling softly. In a second, we were wringing each other's hands as though for wager. Never expected to see you again, my boy. He told me, "Thought you'd forgotten old sex completely." Still, what? Might as well, I answered. Good boy, he laughed. But say, send away that wagon out there. The whole neighborhood will think I'm sick and you're the doctor. Sex really looked uneasy. I did as he wished. Then he took me straight to his little kitchen. Get up a dinner, he explained. The reason I'm still mad is because I look after my digestion and live well. Upon a huge ranch were several small pots bubbling, and Sex went to work like a veteran. I attempted to account for myself during the twelve years' absence, but Sex cut me short. I know all about it, he said. Kept track of you right along. Regretted very much your sporty life. But for your deserted folly, you cultivated a seriousness at the wrong end. You remained at nothing long enough to make a success. You surrendered to failure right off, and the sincere enthusiast never admits failure. You have wasted many valuable years. What will you talk later of that? What I have in these poems will improve with the scenery. Come, I show you about the place. He escorted me through the tiny hall to several rooms. There was a sitting room, a cozy smoking room, a library, and three bedrooms. The books in the library were piled high from floor to ceiling without shelves or covering, and tumbled in every direction. Best way to keep books, he explained, to open for moths. The mildew never attacks them. Then, if you want a book, you can lay hand on it at once. I'm here when I'm not in the attic. We visited the cellar, and Sex with pride showed me several brands of fancy wine in casks and bottles, and there was a large variety of imported liquors. Two cup-shaped bottles he took from the shelves, remarking, "We'll test them later." And then he led the way to the attic. The most remarkable room comprised the length and width of the house. It was packed with old instruments, huge globes, and vast maps of the world cut the corners and lined the walls. And there were telescopes and grid charts of the heavens, and monstrous cylinders and electric batteries, and tall crystal columns filled with fiery-hued liquid. And there was a queer steel contrivance, resembling a table with a top cut out, and suspended in the center was a huge crystal globe, pierced by a steel rod. The globe revolved upon this rod with wonderful rapidity. Saxlina vouchsafed no explanations. Another thing which roused my curiosity was something of vast dimensions, carefully covered with canvas. 
Sacks jealously guarded this treasure, whatever it was, and skillfully turned my attention to other matters. And was it for this you resigned everything? I blurted out. Exactly, he replied. Where does it lead to? North Pole. I turned to him in astonishment. He stared back defiantly. I refrained from remark, but a sensible man like Sex should have such a full desire. And the end? I asked stupidly. North Pole. He cried out impatiently. Will, will, will. He took my arm and led me downstairs, remarking, "I was about to eat the finest dinner I ever tasted in my life. I certainly enjoyed the meal. As a cook, Sex was an expert. His superb sultana and candy loosened our tongues, and Sex speedily learned I was wide and adrift as to my future intentions. This was during the pessimistic sultana stage." When the preparatory gloom of expected hilarity causes one to view life sadly, and I ended up a long-winded refrain with, "Honestly, sex, I believe at the end of it all will be a woman." Sex was horrified. "A woman!" he yelled. "A woman! Good heavens, Saluji, you must be mad!" "It's an ordinary madness," I snapped. And I see no occasion of excitement if eventually the main idea should develop into a woman. What's so terrible about it? All are brilliant men and heroes end their careers with a woman. Stop! cried Sex. Stop the nonsense! You are not in earnest. You'd cease to interest me if you were. And yet there is a lot in your statement. The many great men have ended with a woman. That was their death, but all accomplished their ambition before seeking diversion. I laughed and told him he had just quoted me, and women were the most delightful diversion the world contained. He flushed and tried to appear angry. I laughed louder and asked him how old he was. He seemed younger than when I left college. He shook his head impatiently and cried. Fudge got over all that twenty years ago. I'm near fifty. He told me, "But a man can remain the same age fifteen years. How old do I look?" Thirty-five. I answered promptly. I thought so. He replied slyly, "A man always remains that at least fifteen years, and it is generally understood we do not reach prime till sixty." Uh huh. We'd reached the county, and also the conclusion that we were both rather fortunate than otherwise in being alive. And this is a cheering, vigorous thought. And the county inspired lengthy discussions upon all manner of scientific subjects. And as my interests were centered in the attic, and sex finally took me up there again, I made straight for the great canvas covering, and sex. Who had soon resolved to the winds, assisted me to remove the covering, and to my astonished eyes was revealed the monstrous machinery of what? It was massive structure composed entirely of steel, 
and looked like a locomotive resting upon slats. The snoot had a projectile three feet in circumference and nine feet long, terminating at the base through the sides of a three-carat diamond. And the diamond was there, sparkling and blazing away in serene splendor. The ridiculously small button was pressed, and the slats slowly ascended, exposing the base of the machine, which was shaped like a canoe. Another button pressed, and the projectile shot into a socket. It's magnificent, a marvelous invention, Sex. What is it intended for? But Sex ignored my question. It certainly is a beautiful thing to look at. But useless, he told me, a failure which someday I shall master. I mean, a failure to succeed, as I have discovered the faults, and I only have to discover the remedy. An odd look of hopelessness and defiance shaded his face. He turned as though to hide his expression. I haven't been near it for months, he continued. Everything is in readiness, though. I keep it that way in case I take the notion and won't have to waste time in preparations. But look at it; sometimes sickens me. Courage, I told him. You cannot fail. You are master of the instrument because of all its imperfections. He sighed heavily, then explained the faults of his machine, which I examined with enthusiasm. I became inspired and declared positively. I could perfect it. Sex smiled and replaced the covering, then trotted me from his treasure room. You are one idea at a time, man. You have said it is a secret of the prolongation of youth. At present, your splendid intellect is a blank, and I will not take advantage of it. Go, remain away a week. Think well of your future. Won't you know what indefinite plans you may have formed? Should you return within the week, I know you are free, untrammeled, open to suggestion and the supreme idea. Whichever way you decide, Saluji, I wish you prosperity and success. I grasped his hand as he escorted me to the door. I had spent the entire day with him, and it was evening now. Beautiful. With the white light of the moon, when Sex stepped out, he held the fresh, balmy air, and greeted a man who was coming up the little gravel path. Who informed him it was indifferent night for reservations. The light from the door fell upon his features, and I recognized Professor Saunders, the astronomer, whose lecture I had often listened to with the keenest interest. He greeted me. Then murmured something, entered the house, and rapidly vanished in the region of the attic. Sex, anxious to join his friend, rather abruptly bade me good night. However, reminding me I'd been haphazard long enough, he decisively, he murmured. End of section two.